Toronto International Film Festival kicks off this week. I'm celebrating my 15th year as its documentary programmer. On today's episode, my boss, artistic director Cameron Bailey. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. The pandemic brought a radical disruption to film festivals in 2020, but Cameron and the festival's co-head Joanna Vicent navigated to make TIFF happen. For months, the outlook kept changing from week to week. Could the festival take place in person or only online? TIFF arrived at a plan for both. From September 10th to the 19th, some films will show in theaters to socially distanced audiences and also at outdoor locations in Toronto. Many more viewers will experience the festival online with screenings geo-blocked across Canada. Registered press and industry can watch on a special platform from other parts of the world. It won't be the same as usual, but nothing in 2020 is the same. I'm grateful that TIFF gets to take place at all. The lineup is reduced, but still has a strong selection of documentaries. Many former guests from Pure Nonfiction have new films this year. Frederick Wiseman looks at his hometown, Boston, in the film City Hall. Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer follow up their previous film about volcanoes with a new exploration of meteors called Fireball, Visitors from a Darker World. Sam Pollard, who is last at TIFF with his film about Sammy Davis Jr., returns with a documentary titled MLK FBI, investigating J. Edgar Hoover's campaign of harassment against Martin Luther King Jr. The Italian director Gianfranco Rossi follows his Oscar-nominated film Fire at Sea with a journey through Middle East territories once occupied by ISIS in the film Noturno. And Don Porter, who's been my guest twice on this podcast, has a new film about President Obama's photographer Pete Souza called The Way I See It. If you can't experience those films at TIFF, several will come to the New York Film Festival, and they'll all wind up in wider distribution. I spoke to Cameron last week by phone. We skipped talking about festival logistics. I wanted to get more to the heart of what drives him. He and his family are immigrants from Barbados by way of London. He and his older sister Maxine settled in Toronto with their mother Lucine as a single parent. She passed away last year, and Cameron wrote a remembrance. He said she lived by a code, study hard, work harder, keep your home and yourself looking good, do better, do better than they expect. Tiff has greatly benefited from Lucine's legacy. For many years, Cameron's sister Maxine was a key fundraiser and started the Share Her Journey campaign to support women filmmakers. Cameron first started at TIFF 30 years ago. I'm holding to my hands the program guide from 1995, when I was attending simply as a film lover. That year, Cameron launched a new section at the festival called Planet Africa, with nine films, features, and shorts. They included works from Burkina Faso and Mali. They also included the feature debuts of the American directors Joe Brewster and Thomas Allen Harris. Cameron picked films that might have gotten lost in other sections of the festival and called special attention to them. He was welcoming not only black filmmakers, but also black audiences, a struggle for most white-led festivals. 
For years, the Planet Africa Party was the event you didn't want to miss. That opened my eyes to the role of a festival programmer. It showed me the effort behind trying to move a film from the margins to a brighter spotlight. Planet Africa lasted for 10 years and showcased filmmakers such as Charles Burnett, Yusam Palsy, St. Clair Bourne, Raoul Peck, and many more. After 2005, the initiative ended and those films moved into different sections of the festival. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Planet Africa. Cameron has curated a new set of films under its banner, including three documentaries that we'll discuss. Before he became TIFF's co-director, Cameron juggled a freelance career of cultural journalism and dabbled in filmmaking. He wrote for Toronto's Alternative Weekly and contributed to CBC Radio and Television. His career could have gone in many directions. I started by asking how he chose to focus on TIFF. You know, for a long time, I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do and, and would just follow what seemed most interesting at the time. And yeah, I did have this bug about just creating from scratch, from a blank page that I wanted to pursue. So I did do some screenwriting. I made a short film in Brazil. Um, glad I did all of that. Would never do it again. Uh, <laughs> and when it came time to the uh, to, to the festival, you know, I was approached uh, for a job in late 2007 uh, as uh, as co-director of the festival, and um, I had to think about it. I knew it meant, uh, first of all, a full-time gig, and I had been a freelancer for my entire career up to that point for over 20 years, uh, and I'd never had just one boss, just one place of employment, and I liked it that way. Uh, I liked the freedom of that. And so I had to consider what that meant to, to you know, just kind of go all in with TIFF. Um, but what I always loved was that translation of you know, my thoughts and my responses to films to an audience and what they might bring to it and how that could be different, how it's kind of an ongoing conversation, um, how it can be unpredictable. All of those things were exciting to me. And TIFF has just the great good fortune to have what I think is the best film audience in the world, really. And, um, and it's in, you know, large numbers and incredible variety people who love all different kinds of films across the spectrum and being able to bring films to that audience for the first time and get their reaction, be a part of that, be there with the filmmakers when they were getting that audience reaction. That was what drew me to it. If anyone's seen you do a Zoom interview uh, this year from your office, they'll see the wall behind you has an enlarged uh, image of a woman's face. It often looks like she's looking over your shoulder um, in <laughs> always uh, and zooms. Can you explain what the, what that image is? Yeah, um, her name is Imbacine Therese Diop. Uh, she was the lead actor in the very first African feature film uh, that was made and, and disseminated widely called La Noire De or Black Girl by Usman Semben. Uh, the great uh, filmmaker from Senegal. And um, that particular image is one that I first saw when Criterion issued their, uh, their DVD release of Black Girl. Black Girl is a classic film for world cinema, for African cinema. And I just love her performance in the film. It's a story 
of a woman who leaves Senegal, goes to the south of France to work as a maid for a white French family, and uh, you know suffers uh, a, a pretty. Uh, awful uh, experience there, uh, but the film is told with great dignity, with a kind of a sly sense of humor as well, and it really is a story about colonization, and it just sums up so much, and the fact that it was there at the very beginning of African cinema just seemed really resonant to me, and so I love the film, I love the image, uh, I'm a great admirer of the filmmaker Usman Semben, and I'd been immersed in African cinema for, I guess, about 30 years now, going back to my first trip to the Fespaco Festival in 1991. And uh, I, you know, when I took on the job as co-head of the organization of TIFF and the Toronto Film Festival, I wanted an image that when I was working in my office would always remind me of the cinema that I loved, what was important to me about film. Uh, and it was something beautiful as well. And I feel like I, I take inspiration from it every single day. So, I want to go back to 1995, uh, the year that you created the Planet Africa section uh, at TIFF. Um, can you talk about you know, what the motivations behind that section were? Yeah, you know, for me, it's it's this is almost like a sense memory of um, somehow persuading my boss at the time, Piers Handling, who was the CEO of TIFF for many, many years, just stepped down a couple of years ago. He and I got on a plane in 91 and went to Fispaco, uh, the big Pan-African film festival in Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso, just on the edge of the, the Sahel Desert. And the, the sense memory I have is getting off that plane, walking down the stairs from the airplane onto the tarmac, and just feeling that gust of hot, dry air, because you are on the edge of a desert. And that was my first time stepping foot uh, anywhere on the African continent, and it was for peers as well. And uh, it was a momentous experience for me. I spent the next almost 10 days uh, immersing myself in African cinema, sitting in open-air screenings with local Burkinabe audiences, meeting tons of filmmakers. Uh, Jabril Diop Mambeti and others were there. Uh, you know, the, the guy who ran an African film festival in Tokyo was there. It was just this global gathering of people who made and loved African film. And I carried that with me. And I began to program African films. And it took about the four years in between 91 and 95. But by that point... Piers and I had talked about um, starting a section within our festival that would bring those films uh, to Toronto and bring them together with films from the African diaspora as well. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that time now, and it was a different time to now, but it was connected in a way, and that there was a, a kind of a, a vocal public surge of... Uh, uh, black and African perspectives and voices. Uh, this was the era following the Rodney King verdict. Uh, there were similar um, instances of police violence against black people here in Toronto that were also met with street protests. It was the time of, uh, you know, the, the, the New Jack Swing cinema uh, that was coming out um, and, and Spike Lee's work. Uh, the native tongues, hip-hop artists coming out of New York. Um, so there was this kind of real flowering. This was the time when you, would, you know, people would walk around with Africa medallions on, right, Inst instead of gold chains as a symbolic gesture. Mm -hmm. And so all of this was happening at the same time. Black filmmakers were making the first feature films in this country. Uh, Clement Virgo's 
um, Rude and Stephen Williams' Soul Survivor both came out in 1995, the same year that Planet Africa started. All of this was this kind of ups, upsurge of, um, of work that was being made, uh, and it just felt like the right time. And so we launched it that year. Uh, filmmakers like John Acumfra from um, uh, the UK were in the section. We had a new film by Jabril Diop Bambetti in the section, many others, Francis Ann Solomon from Trinidad. Um, and so it just felt like we were bringing the African world together, getting voices to kind of intermingle. It was a great time. The program ran for 10 years, um, and there were lots of tensions within it as well. But I, I, what I remember most is what sparked it in terms of landing in Burkina Faso and then that, that's, that kind of moment that it was a part of as well in the, in the early and mid-'90s. I want to ask more about <clears throat> curating these uh, diasporic voices together because a you know, filmmaker in Kinshasa is going to have a different experience from London or Port-au-Prince or Chicago. And you, can you talk about the, you know, the value of putting them under um, one umbrella? Yeah, it was a risk because there are as many differences as there are similarities. But the similarities are significant ones, I think. And, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no matter where you are in the African diasporic world, your world is shaped by colonization one way or the other. Uh, and, yeah, you could be in Chicago, you could be in Paris, you could be in Sao Paulo, but one way or the other, your work is shaped by colonization. Even, I mean, there's, there are small parts of the African continent that weren't directly colonized, but even there, <laughs> they are shaped by global colonization. So that's part of it. Mm. And then the resistance against that, the black resistance against that, was also something that united, I think, all of these voices that were coming out. And, you know, I was also shaped coming up. I, I did my undergraduate degree in English literature, and I, by the end of it, I was able to begin reading uh, Pan-African literature and the, the whole Pan-African movement uh, coming out of both West Africa and the Caribbean, which was about, okay, let's find what are the things that still unite us, even though colonization has dispersed African people all over the world, what are the things in terms of our politics, our histories, uh, our culture uh, that unite us. And so when we showed a film from Mali, for instance, by Suleiman Sisse, uh, with you know a very distinct narrative style that wasn't about a single heroic protagonist pursuing a goal, but had a different kind of um, almost collective social protagonist, um, that's something that you could find uh, bits of in, say, Hali Garima, who, you know, a filmmaker with uh, heritage in Ethiopia but working in the U.S. Uh, and so we began to look for those kinds of commonalities. John Acumfer is another good example, a filmmaker whose work is entirely rooted or nearly entirely rooted in the UK, uh, with its specific history of colonization, uh, but he himself is from Ghana. Uh, he's worked also in Nigeria. He's very conscious of uh, his Pan-African identity and his African identity, and those all turn up in the work. And so I wanted to generate a conversation where all of those different elements, those different sources were kind of meeting in one stream. Um, let's bring this to the 25th anniversary. Uh, this year, you've got four films that uh, you put under the Planet Africa banner to celebrate that anniversary. Uh, three of them are documentaries, and since this is pure nonfiction, I'll concentrate on those. Um, can you uh, just say a word about these three films, 40 Years a Prisoner, Downstream to Kinshasa, 
and the way I see it of things that stood out to you in these films? Yeah, I'll I'll start with the film Downstream to Kinshasa by Diodo Hamadi. Um, and I was really struck first by the access that he had to his subjects in the film. This is the story of a group of survivors of um, a, a brief war um, in Congo who who are seeking justice. They've been wounded in the war. Their lives have been affected. And there are two ways that they express that. One way is by traveling from their remote interior uh, uh, location to the capital, to Kinshasa, to try to seek political justice from the, the leaders of the country. And the other is by expressing the stories of what happened to them in the war uh, in a theater piece. And uh, and that those things are, are interspersed. And that could seem like a kind of a schematic setup, but it actually works really well in the film. And the filmmakers are with this group of, uh, of survivors and theater artists as they travel down a river in really rough circumstances in the middle of a storm and different things and, and get to the Capitol and press their case on the streets outside of the, the legislative building. Um, and it's, it's, it's powerful, it's intimate, and you really get a sense of the larger picture of what war has done to a country like Congo and its people through the, the stories of, of these particular subjects. Um, 40 Years a Prisoner, incredibly emotional story. I was very moved by it. We've had Tommy Oliver at the festival before with a fiction film called 1982 several years back. This is a documentary where he, for the last several years, had been following the case of um, Mike Africa and Debbie Africa, two members of the MOVE community in Philadelphia um, who uh, were imprisoned. Uh, and had been in prison for decades, and they, uh, they, their son was a baby when they were sent to prison, uh, and um, uh, his name is Mike Africa Jr., and he was trying for many, many years, for most of his life, really, uh, to tell the, the, the real story of his parents, to, to win justice for them, and to get them out of prison. And it's an incredibly detailed chronicle uh, using archive images and just following Mike Africa Jr. and interviews with him and others uh, and telling that story of MOVE, which has been told in other documentaries, but I don't think it's uh, the emotion has ever landed uh, as deeply as it did for me with this one. Well, and, this and the one. focus on MOVE has usually been the, the fire in, uh, yes, in, I believe, 1985. This That's is an right. earlier chapter that was new yeah. to me. Yeah, and and I think by by really kind of bringing that focus in a in a in a kind of more uh, targeted way on uh, you know a family story, one son, a adult son, and his two parents who've been in prison for decades, just the pain of of not be, having access to your parents as you grow up, um, that was really what what to me allowed the entire move story to hit home in a bigger way and and you know the archive footage really stands out the, the interviews uh in the 80s with uh the mayor of philadelphia and the police authorities and those kinds of things you know if you look at uh, on the, what's happening on the news today in terms of uh police violence uh, against black communities and and the the street protests you feel like uh yeah this was, has been happening for decades so that that's a, a you know a film i'm very proud to have at the festival i think people will really uh, respond to it. And then Don Porter, who made just the most beautiful uh, documentary about John Lewis uh, recently, uh, Good Trouble, 
um, she has made a film about Pete Souza, who uh, over two administrations was a photographer in the White House. Uh, he was the official White House photographer during the Obama administration, and he also worked during the Reagan administration as one of maybe the more junior members of the, the uh, photography team. And he's got this you know, long experience of what it's like to be a fly on the wall chronicling, you know, in the moment what end up being very historic photos. And sometimes a single photo or two can sum up an entire president's administration. We've seen that in the past. And and this is really the story of how uh, he chooses those moments, how he finds those moments, but also how he's evolved himself. Because when he started his job, he was... Uh, a chronicler, as objective as he could be as an observer. But having seen what's happened since Obama left the White House and who the current occupant is and how that office uh, has has been so transformed and uh, he would certainly say degraded uh, by the current president, he's become an activist as well. And he's using the photos from the Obama years to contrast with what's going on in the White House today and that to me, it just, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And just by showing two photos back to back, one from the Obama White House, one from the Trump White House, you really do get a sense of, um, of how much things have changed. I mean, this summer has been an extraordinary one to put together a festival. Obviously, the, uh, the pandemic of COVID-19, um, but also all of the reckoning happening uh, in the streets. And uh, I mean, every week seems to bring um, some piece of news, uh, either the, the unnatural killings uh, by police or even the natural death of Chadwick Boseman. Um, a lot of moments for for sorrow, a lot of uh, moments for um, for feeling galvanized to uh, to make change. Um I wonder how you've experienced this summer while also trying to put together a festival um, under extraordinary circumstances. It's been shattering, you know. Um, I don't think I have, you know, gone through the gamut of emotion any year putting together the festival. This is my 23rd festival that I have that I have this year. Um, Sometimes it's hard just to kind of show up for the Zoom meetings when you know what is going on uh, on the streets uh, of, of not just the U.S., but Canada and other places as well. Um, so that's been hard. But the thing that I think keeps me going is just understanding how central the work of images is to all of this. Right. The reason we know about George Floyd is because of cell phone video and cell phone video was the catalyst that that brought people into the streets to protest and that I think are, are in the in the middle of changing society. Uh, and that is the case with so many uh, other instances. Um, and uh, well, the same with Jacob Blake most recently. And sadly, this just keeps happening. And it's unfortunate that it takes a cell phone video for people widely to believe what's happening in terms of police violence against uh, black people. But but that seems to be what it does often take. Uh, so that that's important, too. So, you know, we actually launched a series of conversations after the George Floyd 
case and the protests uh, against that, that murder erupted called Images Matter. And we wanted to talk about how not only cell phone images matter in terms of galvanizing people, but the movie images, the TV images that we all have, we've all absorbed about police matter as well. You know, police as heroes, police as conflicted, but, but you know, ultimately good actors in the world. You know, we've all seen probably thousands of hours of cop shows and movies about cops where even if they appear to be crooked, uh, they end up doing the right thing. Or even being crooked can be kind of sexy and heroic in its own right. And that shaped how we think about the police. And, uh, you know, we can we can have different opinions about what that means, but what we can't do is ignore uh, how our, our views of, of police and policing have been shaped by movies, uh, TV shows, and now especially, um, you know, amateur video. Um, so whether it's fiction films or television series or documentaries, all of these things really matter because they're more powerful than sometimes we think they are. And that's why it's important for us at TIFF to bring these images to audiences, to talk about them, to actually draw people's attention to how these images are working on us and make sure that it's, it's just a conscious process and, and not something that we just absorb uncritically. I want to thank Cameron Bailey for joining me. TIFF takes place September 10th to the 19th. Cameron will lead two conversations for the 25th anniversary of Planet Africa that you can view anywhere in the world. See our show notes for details. One of the films we discussed, The Way I See It, about President Obama's photographer Pete Souza, comes out later this month from Focus Features and MSNBC Films. Pete was with the president all the time. Unlike his predecessor, Mr. Trump does not allow his staff photographer to capture photographs of life and work inside the White House. If you just stacked up the images of the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency, you would see the two stories of America in the starkest possible contrast. That's Don Porter's film, The Way I See It, coming to U.S. theaters on September 18th and to MSNBC on October 9th. You can hear my first interview with Dawn on Pure Nonfiction, Episode 2, discussing her films Gideon's Army and Trapped, and our second talk on Episode 75, discussing her Netflix series, Bobby Kennedy for President. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Hey.